Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. Today, we have a special guest, Emilia Zivotaskaya. She is one of the leading world experts in the area of positive psychology and the science of flourishing. In fact, she started the Flourishing Center over a decade ago, and there's been 1,300 graduates of her training program, specifically in positive psychology, as well as the study of resilience. We have Amelia here today because we all know that going through divorce is one of the most difficult journeys you can take. And I share in this podcast my own struggle with sadness and depression and how the skills of being happy can be skills that we can all learn. And I walked away from this podcast with Amelia with an unbelievable sense of peace and as well as hope because what Amelia will be taking us through are the skills that we can learn to have happiness in our life despite whatever is being thrown at you, negative or positive from the outside world and potentially your partner and family. And she shares with us essentially three different pieces of how we can change our habits and change our habits with not only what we think, but also change our habits with our emotions, what we feel, and finally, what we do. I'm so excited to bring this important topic, and I can guarantee that at the end of this podcast, you're going to have so many more tools and feel so much more confident and calm and secure about your future of how you navigate your divorce and beyond. So thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I'd love to introduce our special guest today, Emilia Zivotowskaya. I'm so excited for you to be here. You work in the area of helping individuals live the best life possible, and I know that you have expertise in Reiki, Thai massage, yoga, as well as a therapeutic background as well with the flourishing center that you founded. How did you get into this field? Have you always know that you wanted to be in a helping, you know, related industry, even when you were young? Mm, Thank you for the question. Yeah, it's kind of funny because what are the things that you remember from childhood? And I I actually have this vivid memory of being, I think, around four years old. I was born in, in Kiev, Ukraine, which was the Soviet Union back then. And I remember actually being in the Kalyaska, which is the stroller. And I actually remember adults asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember saying a teacher. 
And then it never really occurred to me, like when they would say, well, why do you want to be a teacher? You ask a five-year-old why? And I would just say, because my mom was a teacher. And and that was like the only answer I had. But it kind of dawned on me uh, about a decade ago when I was doing this work to say, oh, wait, I knew I wanted to do this type of work even back then. And then as I grew up, I got to school and I saw what teachers actually did. And I think it was around second grade that I went, uh-uh. I don't want to be a teacher, not not of this. But I realized that as I stepped into my field, which is actually primarily positive psychology and mind-body medicine. So I've gotten a lot of integrative health and wellness trainings in things like yoga, time massage, nutrition as medicine, things that support the health and wellness side of things that I do. And the Flourishing Center is an organization that was started in 2008, specifically focused on bringing the tools of positive psychology and mind-body medicine to the mainstream. I got my degree in positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania under the founder of the field, Dr. Martin Seligman. And I was part of the second graduating class in 2006. So I think that I was partially just very blessed to have been early adapter of this work. To this day, a lot of people still don't know what positive psychology is, even though it's been around. It was a field that was created in 1998. And so in some ways, I stumbled upon this field, which was the science behind what I wanted to do, which was I wanted to help people and help people live happier, more fulfilling lives. And when I first came across psychology, I love that it studied the mind. I loved understanding how people think and how people tick and getting a better understanding of the human condition. But so much of what I'd been studying in psychology classes focused on neurosis and disease and diagnoses. And I knew that I was really passionate about self-help. I was really passionate about helping your everyday person identify what would give them meaning and purpose and happiness and strength and fulfillment. So initially I thought I was going to be a traditional psychologist, but I was going to be a sneaky psychologist. I would kind of go the traditional route, but the kind of things I really wanted to help people with were these north of neutral, as we would call it, type of things, rather than trying to get them out of the negative back to neutral, how to get them north of that, which is actually why we call positive psychology a positive psychology because it's about getting people from zero up into the plus two, plus seven, plus tens in their life rather than just negative seven back to zero. So that was a little bit of my academic journey. I then went on having had studied positive psychology, also felt that positive psychology was very mind-oriented as a psychology. But what we now know in the science of integrative health and wellness is that you don't separate mind from body. And it used to be called mind and body medicine, and now we call it mind-body medicine. And so I went on to get my degree, and I'm currently still in the process of doing my PhD in mind-body medicine at Saybrook University, and took on any tools that are based on science that I could come across that have been shown to help people become happier, more resilient, more fulfilled. And my tendency is I try them on myself first. I call myself my own little lab rat. I experiment on them (laughs) myself. And usually I experiment on them with my students. And then we figure out how to scale those tools and those skills and share them with more people once we know that they work. So Amelia, the reason why... I desperately wanted to interview you for Financially Ever After is because the women who are listening to this podcast, you all are going through 
some of the most difficult times of your life. And divorce, there's very little that many people think of it as positive. And, you know, the women that we work with and, you know, many of you listening to this podcast are dealing with depression, dealing with trust that has been broken, fear, anxiety, and, you know, I'll be very honest, I have dealt with depression in certain times of my life, and I found myself with my thoughts very consciously realizing, you know, why am I so negative? Why am I thinking so negatively, but feeling trapped that I couldn't couldn't change it? You feel like you're stuck. It's almost like you're in mud or quicksand and you you want to get out, but you can't. And you really struggle. You want to be happy. You want to be happy. Who doesn't want to be fulfilled and happy and find purpose and meaning and, and all of this, but you feel stuck. And I know I felt that way. And so when we come to positive psychology, it is the answer. But how do we, particularly if you're going through a divorce or something that is as traumatic as that, how can we move from that neutral or even below neutral to that much more positive place that we desperately all want to be? Well, thank you for your question. And one of the models that we teach here at the Flourishing Center is a model that builds off of a model in yoga. In yoga, we say self-awareness enables self-care. And through the recent research, we've added in self-awareness enables self-compassion, which enables self-care. And I've been working with this model and have used it now with thousands of people. And it has become my motto for how does metamorphosis or transformation happen with people. So it starts with self-awareness and the greater your self-awareness, the more you can have self-compassion and the more self-compassion you have, the more self-care you can practice. And as you practice that self-care, it gives you more self-awareness. So what are the things we need to be aware of? We need to be aware of one, what we are wired for as human beings. So when you are telling me about the negative thoughts you're having, the mind chatter that you just can't seem to control, you're watching it happening. You're going, I know I shouldn't be thinking so pessimistically. I know that my saying my life is over or everything is ruined is not the right thing, but this is how I feel or this, or, or I just can't exactly. stop thoughts. It's important to know that evolutionarily, we as human beings have been wired with a negativity bias, meaning the bad is stickier and more attention getting than the positive. So you might have 35 things happening right now that are working. And that one thing that's not working is wired to get your attention. Because for thousands of years, if our ancestors were not very good at paying attention to the negative, if they were just overly optimistic and were like, ooh, what's that sound? I don't know. Let me go check it out. They didn't survive nearly as well as the the ancestor that said, what's that sound? I don't know. It could be bad. I'm out of here. We're wired for protection. And this is, we're wired for protection in day-to-day life. We're wired that if you are in a 360 review at work and they're giving you five bits of really good feedback, and then one thing you need to improve upon 
in those conditions, you're going to ruminate about that one thing that you need to improve upon. What do you mean yeah. I've been late? I haven't been late. I've just been running, you know, a little bit behind schedule instead of like we ruminate it. Now add a true threat to our certainty or our autonomy and having the conditions of just a stressful life event, that negativity bias gets amplified. So the more we can understand this is human, this is normal, we're wired for this, the more we can experience that, the more likely we are to have a little bit of compassion for ourselves. So self-compassion is birthed out of self-awareness, self-awareness mm-hmm. of what are we wired for? What are the things that push our buttons? What are our triggers? There are things that all human beings are triggered by. Anything that challenges your safety, anything that challenges your fairness. But then there are things we're personally triggered by buttons that push us, right? So if I have body image insecurity to begin with, and now I'm getting divorced and I'm going, who's ever going to love me again? I got to know what my triggers are. But the more I can do that, the more compassion I can bring to the situation. And we as women, we know how to do this. We're incredibly compassionate and kind and loving to everyone, to our friends, to our children, to our community, to our colleagues. We do this, but we don't know how to do this for ourselves. But I believe that self-compassion is birthed from that sense of understanding. The research by Dr. Kristen Neff confirms we can be more compassionate when we learn to be more mindful, when we learn to give ourselves the kindness we give others, and when we know what we are wired for, when we know that this is part of the human condition, just one of the best reasons to listen to this podcast and to connect with people who are in a similar position because it helps us have more compassion for ourselves when we go, oh, it's not just me. I'm not the only one who thinks this way, or I'm not the only one who's struggling to just think positive, or I'm not the only one that's struggling to figure out what's next. That enables self-compassion. And the last part of the model is then we have to know the skills and the tools of how to work with it, which is where self-care comes in. Actually having the resources to shift your thoughts and feel better. I think what's actually interesting, I mean, you talk about skills for happiness. Yes. I have never thought about skills for happiness, that you can actually have agency over your happiness mm-hmm. by having certain skills. It's, yeah. it's a completely different way of looking at it. And I will tell you a really refreshing way that gives you hope, right? That I can do something. Yeah. I can do something and get myself out of this, you know, circle of thoughts and negative place of being that you actually have Mm -hmm. a control over whether or not you're happy. It's completely a different way, at least for me, that I've ever thought of happiness. And it just gives me, again, it gives me such comfort and hope that I can do something that my happiness is not just what the world throws at me, you know? Yeah. And there's two really fascinating ways of thinking about the research on this. One is if you think about, we hear the word coping skills all the time. Oh, that person has great coping skills or they don't have any coping skills or that's just them coping with the situation. So it's like, we think we recognize that 
coping could be a skill, but why would there not be a skill for the positive side of the human experience? And that's exactly what positive psychology was created to study and identify because as psychologists, we knew a lot about coping mechanisms, defense mechanisms, again, dis-ease, disorder, dysfunction. And the idea was that we believed that it was just an assumption that if a person was depressed or they were anxious, and if it's like they had a thorn you know, in their hand, if you got rid of the thorn, if you got rid of the thing that was hurting, you would automatically get a happy person. Because we just thought that happiness was this thing that just happened, right? If you actually look at the word happiness, it has the same root as the word hap, happenstance, just happens, haphazardly. So how we've been approaching happiness, and there's a fascinating sexual history to why we call happiness what we do. But We'll leave that for another conversation. So this idea that we can impact our own happiness level is important because if you take a depressed person and you get rid of their depression, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to be happy. It just means they're not depressed. If you get rid of a person's loneliness, does that automatically mean that they feel that they belong? No, you just have an unlonely person. Just because you're not anxious doesn't mean that you're calm. So actually approaching these things as a skill as a science to actually identify what are those happiness skills and what are those resilience skills is the foundation of both why positive psychology was created and what it identifies. And it gets around this myth of happiness that many people have, which is the, I'll be happy when. I'll be happy Mm -hmm. when this divorce is over. I'll be happy when. I'm back on my own, or I'll be happy when I find someone else. I'll be happy when I get out of this job. And what the research shows is in some ways, we are happy when those things happen, but we are happy in a momentary way where what we look at in terms of a person's affect or their emotional state, it's sort of like, how happy are you in general? Not just what your mood is like. We know that those I'll be happy when's don't actually create lasting change to our happiness. There's a concept in psychology called the set range or the set point theory, which is this idea that we all dance in a certain happiness range. And so when a really good thing happens, like we get married and we fall in love, our happiness peaks, but then eventually the honeymoon phase is over and we go back to what our baseline is. Or when a bad thing happens, a devastating thing happens, like a divorce or a loss in the family or a layoff or any kind of disappointment, our happiness level does dip. We're human. We're not meant to just be constantly happy, happy all the time. In fact, if you were happy, happy all the time, we would say that you're bipolar in a manic state. And eventually you would go back in the other side. We're not meant to be happy all the time. So even when the negative event happens, people do return to their set point. But if it was just left there, then it would be a pretty depressing story. And we wouldn't have the self-help industry and we wouldn't have positive psychology because it would just basically say, good things happen and then I go back and bad things happen, I go back and I'm kind of stuck with this happiness range. But what we now know is actually we can make a tremendous impact on our happiness level, but it doesn't come from the things that conventional society tells us it will be. I'll be happy when I can lose 10 pounds. No. What does impact our happiness level is when we make changes to our habits, when we make changes to how we think, how we feel, and what we do. And it's small habit change that actually leads to lasting change over time. And all of this can be learned. All this can be taught. It just hasn't been. It hasn't been studied and it hasn't been 
emphasized as much. So we talk about, you know, changing habits, but what you're, you know, really talking about is changing the way we think, changing the way that we feel and what we do. How do we do that? And I feel like this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? But for those people who are listening that really want to develop their skill sets, what does that look like? How can we listen to this podcast and start to move down that path? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a beautiful question. And it really is that serenity prayer put into practice, right? Because the serenity prayer is, enable me to change the things I can and know what I can change and let go of it. And what the research shows is that this is the only thing we can change. We can change sometimes our life circumstances that impact how we feel. We can change our biological set point. There are some people for whom their nervous system is going to be handling this divorce exponentially harder than somebody else just because their nervous system is wired that way, whatever cards we've been handed. The only thing we really can change is how we think, how we feel, and what we do. And each of those three pathways has specific actions. So the first one, how we think. In order to be able to shift how you think, we want to be able to identify what is your mind chatter. So we actually have to be able to start to tune in to the voice in our head and understand that it is just that, that the thoughts that we're having are not necessarily true. So our motto at the Flourishing Center is doubt your doubts and judge your judgments. Those are the two areas of thinking that are the most important to master. Because if you don't know how to curb your judgments, if your brain just gets away with judging and criticizing you, over time, you're going to start to be at risk for depression. You're so stupid. You made a mistake. How could you let this happen? Everybody else is doing fine. You're the only one who struggles with this. That's criticism, judgment, judgment, judgment. A ton of mind chatter like that you're going to feel like you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders and you're just going to feel weighed down by your own judgment and criticism. So when we say judge your judgments, we say take your brain to court. When you say, I'm not good enough. If you were in a court of law (laughs) and you said, your honor, I'm not good enough. You know, the lawyer would say, where is your evidence? What does that actually mean? That's an absurd statement, right? But we say these things to ourselves. So in order to work with your thoughts, people need to learn to judge their judgments and doubt their doubts. So the other big umbrella of thoughts that are really important for people to learn how to work with is doubts, worries. And what happens for most human beings and those of us going through stressful situations in particular is we tend to get into worst case scenario thinking. Our brain starts going into, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And it starts off with the what if. What if... Like, let's, there might be some people here thinking about divorce. So it's like, what if I go through with a divorce? What if I'm out on my own? What if I can't get another job? What if I can't meet my bills? What if I can't meet my mortgage? And next thing you know, the person is imagining themselves alone on the street by themselves, you know, in a worst yeah. case scenario. Yeah. So yeah. those are the two things. And, and I feel like we, we do that. We do that in so many different capacities, even, you know, you have a speaking engagement. You're going to go visit your family, all these things. And nine times out of 10, all those fears never happen. And you're like, oh my gosh, that, you know, so 
how do we stop that? I mean, that's yeah. just something that we do. And you, I mean, talk about creating anxiety and being anxious. You almost don't want to even leave your, you know, your apartment. Yeah. Totally. Not to sound like a broken record, but I'm usually going to give you the same exact answer, which is self-awareness, self-compassion, self-care. So the first part is self-awareness. It's understanding, wow, are we ever wired to worry? The human brain is wired to worry. It's for protection. And what's ironic, I love that you just said, we worry about all these things that never come to fruition. Now you would think that if having had spent all of these hours worrying, if you were to count up just the moments of worrying, and it would be hours, if not days of worrying over the course of our lifetime. And you would think that because they never come to fruition, you'd be like, this is ridiculous. This is a complete waste of time. Why did I bother worrying so much? Next time, I'm not going to worry about it. But usually what happens is something we didn't even think of. And instead we go, a little part of us goes, you know, I should have worried more because I hadn't even thought of that. It's a a paradox about being human. And the more we can be aware of these simple things, there's actually research that confirms that because the brain is so wired to worry, it actually gives us a little bit of an endorphin kick when we worry. Do you ever get that feeling where like, while you know it feels bad to be thinking about this, you almost don't want to stop. It's like wiggling a loose tooth. It hurts, but it kind of feels good. And that's because for thousands of years, our ancestors that were good worriers had a reason to worry and nature patted them on the back with a good kick of endorphins to say, good job, good thing you worried. But that's when they were running from tigers and life-threatening circumstances. Now it's the threat of the unknown. And so the more we can have this awareness that we're not wired as human beings to live in the moment. Human beings are wired to be thinking about the future and trying to understand the future based on our past. That's why there's this huge movement of mindfulness and actually teaching people how to be in the moment. So that awareness enables us to be compassionate rather than what most people do is beat themselves up for worrying, right? I'm so stupid. I was worrying so much. You know, I worried myself sick. What's wrong with me? That's not going to work. Compassion does. And then we need to be able to work with the worry. And this is where self-care comes in. And so being able to help our brain understand that just because we're wired to worry doesn't mean that we have to. And I use the metaphor. God only knows where this came from years ago, but it seems to work. So bear with me. I use a banana as the example. We have to understand what does worry, what did worry do for us? Why did we evolve to worry? The reason we worry is because we want to protect and we want to problem solve. But when you realize that worrying actually tends to get in the way of problem solving, you want to think of it as a banana. The banana peel is the worry. The actual banana is the problem solving for the future. Ideally, what we want to do is we want to treat our worry as just like the little knock on the door, like a little tap on your shoulder that goes, hey, hey, watch out. By the way, this bad thing can happen. And instead, we run with the worst case scenarios. We want to be able to acknowledge the worry, but then stay in problem solving mode. So we literally want to peel our worry from our problem solving. And most people think that they need the worry in order to problem solve, that if they just stop worrying, that they're going to miss something. And it's not true. Mm -hmm. 
fact, the opposite is true. Worry tends to get in the way of our problem solving because when we're stressed out, we're not thinking clearly. Yeah, you can't you're think reactive. You can't think straight. You're reactive. You're just dealing with whatever's being thrown at you. So it actually gets in the way of good problem solving skills. So being able to calm ourselves down and say, okay, what is the problem that my brain is trying to alert me to? Can I do something about this in this moment? No, I can't. How realistic is this really? And that's a self-care strategy that we can implement. And when we implement that self-care strategy, we evaluate, how did that work for me? We go, hey, that made me feel better. I was silly for worrying, which builds more self-awareness. Hey, that was a good way of seeing it, which builds more self-compassion. And then you're likely to repeat that behavior again. Mm -hmm. But those two types of thoughts are the most important ones to master, judgment thoughts and worry thoughts, because judgment thoughts can put you on the route for depression. Worry thoughts make people at risk for anxiety and at worst, panic attacks. All of those are future-oriented feelings and emotions. You know, you talked a lot about, you know, changing your habits, changing your thinking. And one of the things you said was changing your feelings. And that's one of those things, again, where, you know, I've always thought, well, you have no, no bearing over your feelings. You're going to feel the way you feel. But, you know, what I'm hearing, too, is that recognizing, you know, right now, so I'll give a good example. My son, bless him, I was putting medicine on his face yesterday and I accidentally got it in his eye and he screamed. And of course, like I'm putting water on it and, you know, talk about feeling like a bad mom, having one of those bad moms, like, oh my God, like I'm, you know, nearly blinded my son and, you know, changing the habits of how you're feeling. Okay, here I am. I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling like, you know, I should have been paying more attention, you know, stressed out. I'm thinking about work. I'm, you know, should I be working? And you know how you keep on going all these different things as a person. And what I'm hearing is in that moment, stopping and saying, okay, this is how I'm feeling. Most likely other people would be probably feeling pretty bad too. Mm-hmm. And that I'm hardwired for negativity, kind of hardwired to essentially have this negative self mind chatter yeah. and just being compassionate and realizing, hey, that's okay. That's okay that I'm going through this. And, you know, going through that process that you spoke about that I thought was so powerful of just being more self aware, being more compassionate. And having that lead to better self-care. And, you know, in that moment, say, I'm so sorry, Sebastian. And bless one of the things, I give him a lot of credit. He flipped out. But then he came back and he gave me a big hug. And I gave him a hug. And it just was really nice because I needed that self-awareness. I needed that compassion for myself. And then for my self-care, I really needed a hug. Yeah. And that yeah. was kind of my self-care moment. Yeah. And it's interesting because I didn't think about it that way. But mm-hmm. as you talk about it, you know, how powerful that is and how yeah. I went from a place of feeling pretty darn bad to a really nice, amazing hug from my teenager son, which bless he still hugs me and feeling, wow, okay, I'm, you know, I'm in a much better place. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you pointed out how many people think that 
feelings or things to just happen to us as well. That this idea yeah, that, that you we have can no actually control, control over, right? Yeah. Yeah. Part of, the part of it is needing to distinguish the difference between a feeling and an emotion. And this becomes okay. very subtle. So your son screamed and shrieked when medicine went in his eye because he had a feeling. A feeling is a felt technically supposed to be a felt sense. And so sometimes I use the words interchangeably because, you know, some people say an emotion is a little psycho jargon. So it's easier to say we can control our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. What I really mean to say is we can control our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. So your son was having a feeling. The feeling was pain. The feeling was burning. The feeling was stabbing. That's a felt sensation. You as his mother were feeling guilty. Your emotion was guilt. My emotion, yeah. Your emotion was guilt. And and the reason I say we can control our emotions, we can't always control our feelings. You know, I feel hungry. That 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 is, a, how do I know I'm feeling hungry? Well, the, the chemicals in my stomach have fed a message up to my brain that tell me I'm hungry and I hear gargly sounds and I have a pain in my tummy, right? That's a feeling. And sometimes we can control those, sometimes we can't, right? Sometimes we can drink some water and fake the system out, yeah, but yeah. really it's a feeling. Emotions, the reason we can control them is because our emotions are connected to our thoughts. Our thoughts impact our feelings. This is why two people can go through the exact same situation but feel very differently. So one mom gets it into her child's eye. She feels guilty. Another one starts panicking and another one feels okay. The one that starts panicking goes, oh my gosh, what if? What if I didn't get all the medicine out? What if while he's sleeping, the medicine creeps in and it burns his cornea and my child is going to be blind in one eye and then this is going to affect him for the rest of his life, right? So we could see how those thoughts would lead to the emotion of worry. The person who feels okay is the one that goes, oh my gosh, you know, this is terrible, but I'm I'm glad he's okay. It's all right. This happens. Accidents happen. He's going to wash it out you feeling guilty, you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. I'm a terrible mother. How, how could I do this to him? Right? So guilt is something we feel when we believe we've caused harm. And the fact that we as human beings can choose our emotional state is actually one of the main things that separates us from other animals. Because human beings, we are animals. There are parts of our brain that we share that we have in common with dogs and cats and monkeys and dolphins and birds and lizards even. But the thing that makes us uniquely human is the fact that we can actually choose our response. When we say, I'm taking responsibility for my life, we have the ability to choose our response. It is our biggest weapon. It is our strongest superpower, and it is never trained to us. And we as human beings, we have overdeveloped muscles for negative emotions and we have underdeveloped muscles for positive emotions because nobody ever taught you how to use your positivity muscles. If I were to say, I'm going to give you $1,000 right now, if in the next minute you can generate authentic anger, you know, could you find something that will really get you riled up and feel angry about? Or if I were to say, I'll give you $100,000 if you can generate a feeling of worry, you can totally do that. You can go, what if this happens and what if, when if that happens? And you can talk yourself yeah. into I a feel, worry I feel frenzy. like I'm a professional. Yes. I, I, I'm a complete professional there. 
Yes, <laughs> most of us are. Why? Because of the negativity bias, because we're wired that way. Yeah. That's the way it works. However, if I were to say, okay, ready, set, go, I'm going to give you $100,000 to genuinely create the feeling of love in this moment, some of you might be able to do it. If you're someone that practices loving kindness meditation, you would be able to do it. But what we can do is actually strengthen these muscles, actively create positive emotions. So I work really hard at keeping my gratitude muscles strong. And times where I feel most juicy, most yummy in my life is when I'm doing those practices. And then every once in a while, I'll be like, why am I feeling kind of like empty? Oh, it's because I'm not really filling my life. I actively do what we in psychology call prioritizing positivity. I actually look at how can I infuse more of my day with opportunities to savor. And we can savor by expressing gratitude, by basking, by luxuriating, by doing these things. But we can actually treat positive emotions as muscles that we can train. Train our curiosity, train our compassion, train our connection, train our love, training the feeling of hope. I can actually build my capacity to feel hope just by thinking, what are, what are the things that I want to bring to fruition? But when we just treat positivity as something that happens to us, then yeah, it's going to feel like my only option is to dodge myself from all of this shit storm that's thrown of me of negative things that come at me every day. And the best I could do is be okay and then hope that somebody will give me a hug or hope that someone will give me some good news or hope that a good thing yeah. will happen or yeah. something I want will go on sale, right? Like those things make us happy. But if we actually treat it as I can, I can do, right? I can actually put things in place where I'm saying, today I want to feel more grateful. And gratitude is one of the most powerful places to start because there's always something to feel grateful for. And it's one of the best antidotes to depression um, is because it helps us see that we are the recipients of good things. And there's always something to be grateful for. And it's just a matter of working that muscle, turning on that light switch. You know, so often you turn it on, it goes off, you turn it on, it goes off. And next thing you know, it just sort of stays on a little bit more by itself. But then if you don't keep reinforcing it, then it goes back off and then we have to keep reinforcing it. So you really laid this out beautifully about positive psychology and creating those skills of happiness, that it's the really three parts of changing your habits with thinking, changing your habits with emotion, and changing your habits with what you're doing. And, you know, going to the doing, talking a lot about gratitude. And you also talked a little bit about, you know, loving meditation and, you know, your background with yoga and Reiki. What are some tools or even resources that you could point us to, to start to incorporate that into our lives so that it becomes more of a habit. And what we can do too, is if there's any articles or tools that you know of, we can always put links in our show notes, because I feel like this is, you know, we could have an entire podcast just on, you know, here's the plethora of tools and what I love is that you think about it also as, you know, what tools do I bring in and, you know, which ones are most effective for you. And I imagine that what might be most effective for you might be a little different for someone else. Maybe someone really enjoys journaling where someone else might really appreciate more quiet, peaceful stillness. Others might enjoy something more of a movement of a yoga 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there is a podcast for it. I'll just shamelessly plug my podcast called the Flourishing Center Podcast, which is dedicated. That's what to I was hoping for. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Amelia. <laughs> it is a podcast focused on those tools um, delivered to you in lots of different ways. So we do something called Flourishing Fridays, where we give you those tools. We also have a Science Says section where we dissect new research for you. So our podcast is great. Also on our website, we have a number of different online courses you can take. We have a free introductory course to positive psychology. We have a free introduction course to the science of resilience. So we've spent a lot of time about happiness skills. Resilience is also a skill set. We can actually learn to do what I call bouncing back better. And so our bounce back better or be cubed program is a course you can take the free intro of. And then there's 16 online programs that focus on teaching the skills of mental, emotional, physical, and then also spiritual resilience. And we also offer certification programs. So there might be some people out there who are saying like, not only do I love this, but I want to spread this. I want to turn this into a career. I want to help others flourish. And so we offer a certification program in positive psychology and one in life coaching and one in resilience training. We also offer a certification for school teachers that are really passionate about bringing this to children. And that's a huge area of my passion is going, it's great that we're bringing this to adults, but let's get this in the schools. Let's get happiness yeah. and resilience skills into schools. So if you're a parent on the line and you're interested in bringing this to your kids, there's a great resource called Go Zen which are animations and cartoons you can watch with your kids that teach them these critical life skills and positive psychology skills together. So lots of great resources out there, but my website, theflourishingcenter.com, we've got lots of great things to get you started right on that homepage. That's perfect. And we'll make sure that we have a link to that as well. And I know know, when so many of us are going through difficult times, especially when they impact our kids, that's our biggest concern. And so having Mm -hmm. tools to help them and go through it together is uh, such a gift. And what is the best way to reach you? You, you know, mentioned the Flourishing Center, your, your website. Do you have a preferred email that we can list as well for people to contact you if they're interested in either working with you or one of your courses and getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. You can reach me. My personal email is easy. It's just amelia at amelia.com, spelled E-M-I-L-I-Y-A. Or you can reach us through the Flourishing Center website. We also have a practitioner directory on there. So you can also search through our graduates. We've had over 1,300 people go through this program in 38 countries. So you can see if there are practitioners in your region that you can connect with that might also be offering life coaching or working in different domains. And what you said about the, if you have children and you're going through this, learning these skills with them is such a powerful gift to give them. And it's one of the ways that you can use this very stressful situation in your life and use it as a teaching moment. So use it to say, hey, we're going through stressful stuff as a family. Let's actually learn these things to help cope. But those are skills that are going to set your kids up for success because learning these things at a young age alongside with you will help them have more academic tenacity, help them be more likely to be gritty and persevere despite those obstacles. So I love making it a family affair. (laughs) I love it. I know I was talking to my daughter and I'm trying to start early. So she's 
10 and going to be turning 11, and I was talking about how important it is to have grit. And she's like, you know, Mom, I don't really understand. You want me to be clean and, you know, take a bath or shower. Like, she didn't understand what grit meant. She yes. really thought, like, I Gritty. was telling her that she needs to be dirty. Yes. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, so teaching moment, we need to... <laughs> We need to, a tool to kind of go through this. And yeah. it's hard with kids. Like, you know, there's, for us, there's the book Grit. There's, you know, all these, you know, very adult things. And, yeah. you know, this feels very adult. But, my God, wouldn't it be amazing if we had learned some of these tools, if our parents had taken us, you know, under their wing to learn some of these tools, you know, where might you be? And these are skills that, bless, you need just for everyday life. I mean, life is not always easy and how powerful and important this is. So I'm just so excited that you're here today and that you're sharing this because I know for me personally, what I'm taking away is I have so much more confidence about my destiny of how I travel through life. And it gives me so much more comfort and security that I'm not just going to have my life be dictated by what's thrown at me, whether it's positive or it's negative from the outside world, that I have actual agency. I have actual ability to change that and how I feel or my emotions, you know, how I, I react to it as well as, you know, just how I travel through life and the way I think about it. So I'm just really excited and so excited to be able to bring this to our amazing women that are listening today. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Great. I'm giving you a big hug and all the ladies that are listening, I am giving you a big hug too. And what I invite you to do is to please take this as a stepping stool. I know I am and learn more. And so, again, we'll put links to Amelia's website, the Flourishing Center, as well as information more about some of the courses that she has. I know I'm actually going to look into one. And the one in particular, not only for myself, the, you know, first online positive psychology class that you have, but I really want to look into Gozen. And I think that would be great to take through with my two kids. I think that would be great. So thank you again. And for all of you listening to Financially Ever After, thank you for tuning in and we'll be seeing you in two weeks. This podcast can be helpful for really anyone You don't just have to be a woman who's going through a divorce or going through a separation to want more meaning, more purpose, more happiness in your life. We all want more fulfillment for more resilience. And Amelia was able to give us such important tools to help us do that. I will never look at happiness in the same way because now I know that happiness can be attained by sharpening my skills and my tools. And Amelia shared really three different areas where we can change our habits, and that is changing our thinking, changing our emotions, and changing what we're doing to bring all of those in clear focus. I want to say thank you for tuning in, and I know that on your journey to happiness, and resilience is definitely a work in progress. And for so many women, they feel the same way about their finances. 
that they've never really arrived at knowing everything they want to know about their finances or that they've never really arrived to that place where they feel totally financially secure. And that's why I love this work that we do. And so if we can help you in any way to get more clarity about your financial picture during your divorce or after what you need now and what you need potentially after with income as well as with the assets to make sure that you have a secure life, I really want you to reach out. That's why we do this work at Francis Financial. And we have such a special, amazing team. We not only know about finance, but more importantly, we really, really care. We all come to this work because we have a passion, because we have a mission, because we want to help people. So reach out. Let us help you. And you can reach out to us at Stacy at FrancisFinancial.com, S-T-A-C-Y at FrancisFinancial.com, or you can give us a call. We promise that anyone who answers the phone is going to be happy to hear your voice. And our number is 212-374-9008. Thanks so much, and I'll see you in two weeks at the next episode of Financially Ever After.